I absolutely hate that jingle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if any of you here are, 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 shall we say, talented in that arena, can you come up with a new jingle for us? Because it is sorely, sorely needed. Guys, we've been doing this now for close to 12, maybe 13 or 14 years. We did it the first time, and, and people responded to it so much that we've just kept doing it every year, and it's turned into a podcast and, and, and so much more. It's called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. Many of you here are veterans of this. But for those of you who are new to this, let me explain to you how it works. Yes, we want you right now to pull out your cell phones. And here's how it works. We are going to put a number on the screen, and we are going to invite you to text any question you have on God, the Bible, Christianity, following Jesus, spirituality and the spiritual life, how that intersects with different belief systems and ways of our world today. They could be big questions, little questions, complex questions. Simple questions, straight line questions, crazy out there questions. We want you to text the questions that you're afraid to ask, ashamed to ask, embarrassed to ask. You text them to that number right there. I am going to get them anonymously, in real time, right here. And I am going to do the best job that I possibly can to answer them here today in real time right on the spot. I want to talk to you today about why we do this. My experience has been that there are so many people in this world today who have been given a false bill of goods about God, told things that just aren't quite right, or have come to assume things about God that aren't quite square on. I know many people who are afraid to come to churches because they think that by coming to churches with the honest questions that they have, they will be judged or condemned or ridiculed or laughed at or looked at weird or looked down upon or talked about in some way behind their back. I can find nothing more distasteful to me than that because I believe church needs to be a place where people can come with their questions, the real ones, the hard ones, the honest ones, and find a place where they can flush them out and work through them together without fear of judgment or reprisal. I want to share with you a value that we have here at Fellowship of Faith, and I'm going to read this to you word for word. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people experiencing joys, passions, and struggles. Because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. We believe it's important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach, and we want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. That's what this series is 
about. But that's not all it's about. Or should I say it's not just for people who find themselves outside the church. It's for many of you who have been attending churches for most of your life, calling yourself a Christian for most of your life, because my experience has been that many of you are walking around with the exact same questions too. But your fear is nuanced a little bit differently. Because you think that as someone who's been coming to this church for 40 years, someone who's been a Christian for 30 years, someone who's on staff at this church or an elder at this church or a volunteer at this church, that you're supposed to know all the answers. And you likewise come. And you're afraid to ask. Because you're afraid that by asking, maybe someone will think about you differently, not view you in the same way. Maybe judge you. Maybe you're afraid that I will too. Guys, nothing's further from the truth. Just because you've been following Jesus most of your life or coming to a church most of your life doesn't mean that you know all the right answers, that you have all the answers to your questions or that your questions somehow dry up. We want you to ask him here too because this is what fellowship of faith is about. But here's also what it's about. We believe that asking questions is actually spiritually good. Not all churches give that vibe. There's some churches that sadly, I think, give a vibe that somehow you're not supposed to ask questions anymore at a certain time. And I have met many believers who kind of dry up inside and they stop asking questions of God, this breaks my heart. It's like watching a couple who's been married for 20 or 30 years sitting at dinner together with nothing more to say. They've lost curiosity. They've lost interest. They've stopped growing together. God is an infinite God. And if you think you have him figured out, you are deceiving yourselves. And if you think you know him enough, you haven't even gotten started yet. My hope is that your entire life is based in asking questions of God, going deeper and higher into a relationship with him and exploring more and more the wonderful complexity and joy and person of who he is. And we hope that by doing this, It not only places a value on that kind of spirituality, but gives you an impetus and a catalyst to maybe reawaken a heart and a mind filled with a joyful curiosity of God again. So with all that being said, this thing is lighting up. Let's see what questions we have coming in here today. Okay, all right, all right, scrolling, I'm scrolling. Okay, let me start with this one. FOF wants to be an Acts 2 church. We offer many socially important activities and responsible programs. This is good. But where do you draw the line between too much social and not enough on-your-knees worship? For instance... Offer Holy Communion every Sunday, not just twice a month. Maybe a midweek service and not just in Lent. Man, we don't even do one in Lent. (laughs) Maybe a worship service in summer or fall. 
outside with lots of praise and worship, etc., etc. I'm getting your vibe here. I love your spirit here. Thank you so much for asking. Off the bat, it's really hard to know how to draw that line between how much social versus how much, as you put it, on your knees worship. Because I think the barometer for every person is going to be slightly different on that. And so we just try to find our way through it. Sometimes not always as best as we should. But let me leave you with this as a general answer to this question. Fellowship of faith has often struggled with far more supply than demand. Meaning, at a staff and leadership level, we have always been hungry to give more than what we find the congregation and the community wants. We used to offer Lent services. We stopped for one simple reason. You stopped showing up. And to put that kind of energy into a service for seven people just isn't a good use of time. But this is kind of my MO here, and I would go so far as to say my pledge to you. If you can fill the room, we'll do it. I would love to have worship services here every day of the week. I would love to have 100 small groups here. I would love to have ministries far and wide so that this building is being utilized and your homes are being filled and work is being done out in our neighborhoods nearly 24-7. Will you come? Will you devote yourself to it? Not just when it's convenient. Not just when you feel like it. Because it only works if people are apart. And so I'll leave this to you. If you have a specific service, a specific like, you know, time or event or group or activity, whatever it might be, we're going to put it in your hands. Make it happen. We'll teach you how our system works. We'll give you some guidelines. We'll give you some guidance. Make it happen, recruit the people, get them to come, and see if God catalyzes something through it and people respond to it. And if, it, and if he does, that's how we go about building a church. I got one exception. I'm not doing a Saturday night service. There's none of that nonsense, all right? <laughs> Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, I'll do a 3 a.m. service on, you know, whatever you want. Not, not Saturday night. Beyond that, all right, let's see where it takes us. And uh, I just want to applaud you for that fervency that you have in your heart, and uh, yeah, let's see where it goes. All right, let's keep going. Um, this thing shut off on me, so give me a second. How about this one? All right. Please open. There we go. What is the status of the evaluation of dealing with our growth success? Let me unpack this a little bit. FOF has been growing, numerically. Our worship service is full, and this is the middle of summer, when worship services typically are not full. Uh, we have table dinners that are full, and, and groups that are full, and activities that are happening, and you've heard me lament or, or actually rejoice in the idea 
that we're out of space. But the question does come up of how do we evaluate what success actually is? This is going to sound like such a teaser, and maybe it is. We're actually in the process of reevaluating that at a leadership level. And this Tuesday, we're going to be talking about it at staff level. This Saturday, we're going to be talking about it at a board of director level. And you're going to hear more of that coming out in August. So stay tuned, come back, and you're going to hear firsthand how that's going to happen and play out. Here's one. If you were to die this evening and Jesus met you at the gates of heaven and were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell him? (laughs) Isn't that great? You never really know how you're going to answer these kinds of questions until you're actually standing there face to face. But here right now, if Jesus were to ask Why should I let you into heaven? Here's how I would answer. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Because I know my life, and I know it is not worthy of heaven. I am so sorry. I'm throwing myself on your mercy to do with me as you will. And that right there is the heart of what Christianity is all about. Great question. Here's one. (laughs) So I know that Leviticus is is a known hated book of the Bible. (laughs) But I also hear that Numbers is also hated. Why is the book of Numbers hated so much? Well, read it sometime. (laughs) But you know, Numbers numbers gets, gets the shaft. Because truly, Numbers is an incredible book. You just need to know how to read it. First is the name. Who wants to read it? Unless you're an accountant. Who's our accountants in the house today? All right. So, okay. Unless you're Sarah Bodinus, who wants to read the book of Numbers, right? Who wants to read anything about Numbers that isn't actually the Hebrew name of the book? The Hebrew name is Midbar. And you know what, Bamidbar, actually. And you know what that translates to? In the wilderness. Isn't that a cooler name? Don't you want to read a book, don't you want to actually read a book more, maybe called In the Wilderness, than Accounting 101? (laughs) And it's about Israel's wilderness journey. Now, here's my tip to you. Generally, when we start a book, we start at the beginning. Don't do that with numbers, unless you're Sarah Bodinus. Started at chapter 10. If you start reading at chapter 10 and step away from all the census figures in chapters 1 through 9, I'm going to challenge you that I think you're going to find it to be one of the most captivating, interesting, exciting books that you will read in the Bible. So, there you go. All right. Here's one. How should we treat a once saved, always saved Christian who has fallen away? Are you following this here? There is a division of belief within Christianity today about whether or not you can lose your salvation. Some say 
it is possible to lose your salvation. You've been saved, but that you can walk away, fall away, or reject and truly lose your salvation in the process. There are others who say that once you are saved, you are always saved, even if it doesn't look like you're saved, even if you're not acting like you're saved, even if it seems that you've fallen away. If you were truly saved, you are saved forever. And they each line up their, their arguments that they find from the Bible, and it's a really cool debate and really important, and I'm not going to get into it right now. Because the question is not what's the answer. The question is, how should we treat a Christian who apparently believed they were once saved, always saved, it's in quote, but now has fallen away? And the answer is simple. Love them. Love them deeply. Love them hard. Love them like Jesus would love them. Surround them. Give them the grace to work through their issues. Be patient the anger that they might have towards God, the doubts that, that have drawn them away, the, the persecution or suffering in life that has caused them to reject God in some kind of way, or perhaps a bad experience with a Christian or a church that has given them a bad taste in their mouth. Be patient. Listen to them. Not to win an argument, but to let them process. Be quick to give an answer for the hope that you have, but as Peter writes, do it with gentleness and respect. And I think through that, God will work mightily. How about this? How does God see everyone everywhere all at once? Brother's got a lot of eyes. That's about all I can give. In fact, it's pretty fascinating. We just got done with the Bible study. Um, we do a 9 o'clock class here. And by the way, the room is not filled at 9. So, so come and fill that if you're hungry for that spirituality. But we, we, we do a a Bible study here at 9 on Sunday mornings, and we've just gotten done with the book of Revelation. And it's a book filled with symbolism and imagery that's meant to give us an idea about who God is. And it talks about these living creatures and angels that surround God's throne. And the detail it chooses to give, I love, is that they're filled with eyes. They've got eyes everywhere. Like, you know, they've got eyes under their arms and eyes behind their knees. And like, they've got eyes everywhere. And the idea is they just see everywhere. How? That's how powerful God is. That's how amazing God is. That's how weak we are. I mean, I could see like a field of vision here right now, and I've got to wear like these ridiculous things because I'm about to turn 50, you know, if I want to read anything. But God, he doesn't grow weak. God, he doesn't have a limited line of sight. The Bible wants us and invites us to believe in a being that is far more powerful than we are and that's just part of the majesty of who he is. Here's one. <laughs> How are we not all messed up if we are actually technically inbred from Adam and Eve? <laughs> I would actually argue you really are technically all messed up and inbred, so um, I think that solves that one, you know? <laughs> If you don't know the Adam and Eve story, if you read the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see that God creates an initial couple, and they go by the names Adam and Eve, and they're commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and have all kinds of kids, but then the question kind of comes like, well, okay, maybe they had lots of kids. It'll say that Adam lived to be like 900 years old, and this doesn't mean some hobbled old man, but with vitality and strength. So, I mean, the dude was probably pretty productive, all right? <laughs> And uh, Eve as well. So it does beg the question, though, like, 
okay, then so like brothers and sisters and ew and yeah. <laughs> there is another prevailing line of thought that there may have been other people that, that God had created and that Adam and Eve were more like figureheads of them. And I just, I'm trying not to get baited here because I could go 20 minutes down a rabbit hole. Do, two questions, and I'll answer them separately. One, do you think we are the only creation of God? No. Um, I think there's people gathering in churches right now, not here at 6120, that God's created as well. So... Um, <laughs> sees animals out in my yard. God's created a lot of things. Is the commandment, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder? And there's some confusion on this, especially those of you who learned the Ten Commandments or grew up reading the King James Bible, which tended to prefer that kill language. But the commandment actually properly nuanced and translated is you shall not murder. God does not look at killing as something good. But God did give provision for killing in certain circumstances, as the Old Testament gives wide example of. And so what the ethical mandate God laid down on his people was that while there are certain circumstances circumstances where it is acceptable to take a human life. Not good, mind you, but acceptable. It's only when I say so. From God's standpoint, it's only when I say so. So operate from the knee-jerk capacity, from the basic platform that do not take a human life unless I say so, and if I don't say so, it is murder, which is the wrong taking of human life, and that's how the commandment is truly worded. Here's one. How do you help a child who has turned from God, who is a believer and is now in her teenage years and has become a non-believer? You know, I, all I want to say off the bat is many of us parents can't even come to understand the depth of that struggle that you're having as that parent, watching your child turn from the absolute most important thing that you've come to discover in this universe. And while I don't know you by name, I think we can say our, our, our prayers are with you, our thoughts are with you, and our ears are here for you to debrief with you and process and work through the particulars. Come talk to me if you'd like to nuance this more. But in general terms, I think the answer to this question is very much the same as the answer that I gave for the once saved, always saved believer who has fallen away. Love her. Love her hard. Give her space to do what is very normal and natural as someone transitions from childhood to adulthood, owning their beliefs for themselves, questioning what's true and what's not. And I'm not advocating any kind of idea that it doesn't matter what you believe, believe whatever you want because it's all the same. No, no, your beliefs matter and they have significance. What I am saying is that in your interaction, my gut tells me that she probably needs the space to air her doubts, wrestle through her questions, and you as a parent are now called by God into a new age of parenthood of treating her in a new way, of trying to help her navigate these questions, 
wrestle through her issues, challenge the assumptions, but always bathed in love. And above all, be the example in her life of what the love of God looks like. And pray that God works through that to keep tether lines attached. And God often does. Even when someone seems to drift or meander or go down other paths. Here's one. What do you say to someone that says they aren't a Christian because they can't follow the rules and then in Ten Commandments is put in parentheses? So what do you say to someone that says they aren't a Christian because they can't follow the rules of the Ten Commandments? You simply say this, following the rules is not what makes you a Christian. There is a mistaken belief so far and wide by people who do not identify as Christians and by many who do, and I suspect by many of you gathered here today, who think that fundamentally what Christianity is about is following an ethical system. And while there is an important ethical component to Christianity, being a Christian is not about following the rules. Christianity is about a living relationship with a living God. And that's where it comes from. Everything spurs out of that. A God who loves you, even when you're unlovable. A God who wants to be with you, even when you don't want to be with him. A God who is compassionate, even when you don't deserve it. A God who is patient, even when you do things that go against his will. Christianity is not about following the rules, and you will never find a single Christian who follows those rules perfectly. So don't root your Christianity in that. Help them to see what this is about from a different perspective. Here's one. I'm baptized Catholic. Do you believe that has any bearing on my relationship with God in a Christian sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have been baptized into God. See, when you're baptized, you are not baptized into a local church body. You're not baptized into fellowship of faith. You're not baptized into a denomination as though you're baptized Presbyterian or Lutheran or, in this case, Catholic. Baptize is a Greek word that simply means immersed. And when you are baptized, you are immersed into God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is your identity. The church that you attend and affiliate with is important, but secondary to God. And so... Your baptism, whether it is done in the Catholic Church or this church or any number of other churches that we can mention, is baptism in God's sight. Through that church, maybe, but into him. So rejoice that you've been baptized into God and learn to live that baptism out to its fullest and daily. Here's one, and this is one that I think a lot of us struggle with. Is it sinful to drink the Grimace Shake from McDonald's? It depends how much you drink. <laughs> how do you balance, another question, how do you balance a relationship with God when you have school and sports and very busy 
and then it just trails off, but I'm assuming it means you're very busy, a very busy schedule. This is not a new struggle. People have been struggling with this since the time of Christ and well before. It's why God says take a Sabbath day, because if you let it, your schedule will rule you. Your to-do list will rule you. The needs of this world will rule you. The opportunities opened before you will rule you. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has the absolute best explanation to the Sabbath that I have ever read. They say the Sabbath is a protest of money and of the servitude of work. Isn't that great? That I will not be ruled by what I need or by what is demanded of me. Here's how you balance it. God is not looking for you to balance him with other things in life. He doesn't want a part of your schedule. He wants all of you. The first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. We're going to get into it later this fall, but it's just a way of God saying, I come first. Because gods are not just ideas or statues or idols. Gods are whatever you invest your heart in and depend on in your life. And we all got a lot of gods in our lives these days. God says you shall have no other gods before me. God wants you to put him first. So the question you need to ask is this. God, how do I put you first in everything? Now, that doesn't mean that you need to become a monk and live in some kind of abbey or church singing hymns 24-7. But Lord, how do I orchestrate my priorities, my schedule, and my devotion so that you are honored and glorified in everything I do and that I am giving you priority in all things. And if anything seeks to encroach on what I am trying to give you, it, it fundamentally needs to fall by the wayside. I firmly believe that God wants us to be worshiping regularly. I would go so far as every week. I think that's built into the pattern of, shall we say, the rules, if you will, or the commands that God invites us to do. I would challenge you to prioritize it. But my travel team, I know. But my vacation plans, I know. But my work schedule, I know. Find a way. You're blessed to live in a country where there's a church in every corner. And a thousand churches times 10,000 on every single phone. A simple click away you got to ask yourself the motive question as you're struggling with it. And I applaud you for struggling with it so openly and honestly because it's a real hard struggle. And I challenge you. Prioritize your life around him and seek to put him first as scary as it is. See what happens. See how God responds in that. All right, I've got time for a few more. There's like 150 here, so we're not going to get to them all today. Um, how about this? If we're two divorced people, is it okay to have sex before marriage? Simple answer. No. 
God wants you to enjoy the sexual relationship within the bounds and confines of marriage. So just because you've been married before, even if you haven't been married before but had sex with someone before, you are not spoiled, ruined, as though this doesn't matter anymore. So, well, I guess just whatever now, let's have sex. I've actually talked to Christians who have thought that way mistakenly. No, you know what? Maybe you've had sex with someone else. Confess it to God. Repent of it. Say, Lord, I've come to realize that that's not what you wanted. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he will. And then commit to live a life down the path he invites you to and enjoy the fullness of the sexual experience within a married relationship. Here's one. Why is there so much bad in this world when God can change it? It is a phenomenal question. And we actually just talked about it at a Bible study at 9 o'clock this very morning. So what I encourage you to do is go to fellowshipoffaith.org. Go to the FOF Plus page, which is the repository of all of our, dig of all our digital media, and listen to today's 9 a.m. Bible in Context Bible study. And I think you'll get the answer to that question right there. How about this? There's four questions here, and I'm trying to sort, so forgive me. Um, why did Adam and Eve disobey? Well, two reasons. They wanted to. There was something they saw that despite God saying, don't do that, they nonetheless wanted it. And that's going to happen to you in your life a whole lot. And the devil then came along and took advantage of it and deceived them into thinking it was okay. And that's why the Bible says they disobeyed, and truth be told, I think it's why we do too. It's followed by what would happen if everyone believed in Jesus? This world would rock on. Here's one. What tips or tricks do you have in discerning God's calling for us? It's a great question because it can be really hard. Number one, you've got to immerse yourself in this. You've got to immerse yourself in this in the way it's written and the way people expound upon it, the way people preach on it, teach on it, write about it, etc. It's not going to give you a day-by-day -day kind of planner for your life, but it is going to give you the principles and trajectories that are going to kind of cut channels, if you will, to let you know when you are generally inside or outside of God's will. Second thing, you've got to pray about it and listen to your conscience and bring it to God and spend a lot of time meditating on it and discerning, Lord, what is your will on this? And I want to encourage you, never run the risk of violating your conscience. God has given it to you for a reason. And the third is this. You want to invite people into your counsel, if you will, who know God well, who have your best interest at heart, who will speak the truth to you, but also in love. There is no simple trick or tip that expedites this process quickly and easily. 
And I think that is by design from the living God. Because what the living God wants is not to be just an information hander outer, but someone who is spending time with you. And by having to do that level of, shall we say, discernment work, you inevitably have to spend a lot of time with God. And I think God is smiling ear for ear. So don't see that as a bad thing and don't resent it. Use it as an opportunity to come into the presence of God, to spend devoted quality time with him and see where he leads you along the way. And I have to leave you with this final tip or trick that while I've never been able to substantiate the quote, it's been attributed to Martin Luther. I like it regardless. He was asked a similar question. And then at the end of the day, after more or less giving his own spin on what I just shared with you, he said, and if at the end of the day you come to the edge and a choice has to be made and you don't know what to do, he says, do this. Leap. Leap in the direction that God, leap in the direction that you believe God wants you to go. After all this work has been done, right? And know this. If you've chosen wisely, God will bless it. And if you've chosen poorly, God will forgive it. So you really can't lose. And I will stand here as a living testimony to you today saying, I have made a lot of bad choices, things that I regret in my life. But God has been able to use every one of those to propel his good and shape something in me for which I am grateful and arguably would not be the same if I had not experienced it. Trust God in it. And know that he's got big hands. And whether you're rising or falling, he's going to do the journey with you, all right? That's all I got time for today. Great questions, guys. And I scratched the surface. So let me tell you where this is going. Next week, we are doing this again. And we're going to invite you to text in more questions. I'm going to try to get to questions I didn't answer. And I want to give you a QR code on the screen. We've got a podcast here. We'd encourage you to check it out. We have been answering questions here like this at Fellowship of Faith for 15 years. And you are going to find a repository right there of our questions you never thought you could ask in church podcast. We've taken a summer break, but you're going to find a lot of stuff in the past. And it's going to be kicking off again here soon. More to come on that. And... Um, leverage the resources that are there, especially if these questions are digging in your soul. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to commune today. And as we do, I'm going to invite you to rise. Let's pray.